Bible studies, and we've come to Psalm 111. Okay, so we will start off here with the summary statement for the psalm. Psalm 111 praises Yahweh for the redemption of his people. through faithfulness to his everlasting covenant. I'll go over that one more time. Psalm 111 praises Yahweh for the redemption of his people through faithfulness to his everlasting covenant. Simple outline for the psalm, two parts, verses 1 to 4, his righteousness is forever. And then verses 5 to 10, his covenant is forever. So I'll go over that one more time. Verses 1 to 4. His righteousness is forever. Verses 5 to 10, His covenant is forever. All right, we'll go to our observations. Um, Psalm 111 is an anonymous psalm, so there's no superscription uh, in the, for the psalm, so there's no author that is... Given there's been no author uh, attributed to any particular author uh, historically, um, you know, generally there's always at least some suggestion of David for every every anonymous psalm, but not really a real compelling reason to try to ascribe it to him. Uh, there's no musical direction in the psalm. There's no occasion that is given. Um, however, the psalm does envision a future scene that has not yet been fulfilled but there is no occasion of the writing of the psalm that has been given. So Psalm 111, to categorize it, is a praise psalm. And we probably, I didn't do this for uh, the three at the end of book four, but probably need to give it its own sort of subcategory of a praise psalm. It's, it's a hallelujah psalm. Um, and there are several of those um, here in book five, the three that ends book four, um, so probably need, probably need to use that designation. It, it's a praise psalm. In particular, it is a hallelujah psalm. Um, so it praises this as a praise psalm. It praises the covenant faithfulness of God for future redemption of Israel. Uh, the psalm also um, has some minor wisdom elements, particularly when you look at verse number 10, uh, which sounds like it could be almost in, in Proverbs. Um, and uh, you might say there's some minor Torah elements because it does have, um, uses a, a string of synonymous type words or related terms to refer to God's word. 
Um, that's in, uh, let's see, verse number 7 and 8 that refers to that. Also, the psalm then would be prophetic predictive. It's, it's, uh, it's a future redemption of Israel and their inheritance of the land of the nations that is in view. Um, so it's obviously something that has not yet occurred. So Psalm 111 begins a group of hallelujah psalms. So Psalm 111 through Psalm 117. And they have this hallelujah, and you see it. It's at the beginning of this psalm, praise ye the Lord. Um, it, has, it has that term um, in each of these psalms, except for 114. That term doesn't actually appear in Psalm 114. But these hallelujah psalms are also referred to as hallel um, psalms. And these hallel psalms, which particularly are featured in book number five. So I thought this was just an interesting comment. Uh, this is from the, the Talmud, um, the Pesachim uh, 117a, I think number seven, states that the hallel includes expressions of gratitude for redemption uh, and that when Israel is redeemed in the future, they recite it over their redemption. So I thought that was an interesting um, tradition um, uh, in, in Judaism pertaining to the Hallel Psalms. Um, Psalm 110, obviously that, that we looked at last time, the one right before this one, is just the premier messianic psalm. And that psalm envisions the future descent of David's Lord from the right hand of God in heaven to Zion to reign among and over the nations of the earth from Jerusalem in his kingdom. So immediately after that, we have this group of hallelujah psalms, and it's as though they are just presenting choruses of hallelujah in praise and celebration of the Messiah and his kingdom, as well as anticipating the grand finale of hallelujahs that, this, um, that the psalms ends with um, in those last several psalms. Now, Psalm 111 also continues some of the theme from Psalm 110, which was the concept of everlasting. So in Psalm 110, you have the everlasting kingship and the everlasting priesthood um, of David's line. And so in Psalm 111, we have this repetition of, of everlasting and God's covenant being everlasting, his faithfulness being everlasting, and that, and that sort of thing. So it does, it does carry over somewhat um, from Psalm 110. So the poetic features of Psalm 111 um, would be repetition. Um, so some reference to forever uh, in verses 3, 5, 8, 9, and 10. Um, we have a repetition of references to the works of the Lord and the wonderful works of the Lord, uh, verses 2 and 6 and 7. The psalm also uses um, allusion, so it's not direct references or it's not uh, maybe necessarily completely obvious references, but there are alluding references in this psalm to the Exodus to the wilderness exile, to the Abrahamic covenant, to the conquest of Canaan, and then obviously to um, the nation of Israel as well. So again, those things aren't named specifically, um, but they are alluded to in this psalm. Now, the primary poetic feature of this psalm is its structure. So the psalm is a full acrostic psalm. 
So after the opening hallelujah, every poetic line of the psalm begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So just to give you a quick uh, rundown of some things about the Hebrew alphabet. So the Hebrew alphabet consists of 22 consonants. There are no vowels in the Hebrew alphabet. 22 consonants. Um, we'll see if I can get these right. Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, He, Vav, Zion, Chet, Tet, Yod, Kaf, Lamed, um, Mem, Nun, Samak, Ayin, Pe, Sade, Kof, Resh, Sin, Tav. So those are the 22 consonants of the Hebrew alphabet. Seven of those letters have different forms. And when they have different forms, they are pronounced differently. All right? So, for instance, um, the letter bait, which is the second letter. Um, it's the, and these forms are, it's, it's a dot, it's called a dagesh, um, and it's in a different place in relation to the character. So the, the bait, when it has a dagesh, is, sounds like B as in ball, ba, ba. Um, without the dagesh, the same letter has the sound of a V, like vet or vine or something like that. So there, there are seven different letters that, that do that. They have different forms, and they can sound different depending on their shape. That's bet, gimel, dalet, um, kof, pe, sin, and tav. There are two letters that in the Hebrew alphabet that are silent letters. They do not have any sound, and they're actually glottal stops. All right, so that there's no... Uh, we have glottal stops in English, but we don't have letters for them. Um, so an example would be like the word pizza. Pizza has a glottal stop in it, but there's no letter that indicates that in English. So the letter Aleph, which starts the alphabet, and a lot of people mistakenly think that Aleph is the same thing as A in English. It is not. Uh, it is silent. It's a glottal stop. It, it has no, no sound. There's no pronunciation. Uh, and the letter Ayin. And there are two letters in the Hebrew alphabet that there is no equivalent sound in English. And that would be the letter chet, which is very, both of them are very guttural, chet. Um, there's no English sound really that is comparable to that. And the letter reish, which is um, sort of like an English R, but it is much more guttural and less, that would be, is that dental or labial? I don't, I don't remember those linguistic terms. But anyway, so that, that's just a, a little quick rundown, just some things about the Hebrew alphabet because there are, there are several um, psalms that we look at as we go forward that they are laid out according to the acrostic. So in this psalm, each, each new line um, begins with, and it doesn't correspond to the verses, but each new line begins with a successive letter all the way from Aleph to Tav. Um, and so the use of an acrostic was to aid in memorization, um, and it's also a way of expressing what, what in English we might refer to as an A to Z catalog. In other words, we're covering everything. So it's, it's a way of expressing that it's, it, that it's a, um, an exhaustive statement of a particular theme. And so in this case, um, God's everlasting covenant faithfulness is, is what is reflected and, and stated again and again. Um, throughout this psalm. And so that is the primary 
um, poetic feature of that. And um, we'll go now to look at these verses. So there are 10 verses here in Psalm 111. Praise ye the Lord. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. The works of the Lord are great, sought out of all them that have pleasure therein. His work is honorable and glorious, and his righteousness endureth forever. He hath made his wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. He hath given meat unto them that fear him. He will ever be mindful of his covenant. He hath showed his people the power of his works that he may give them the heritage of the heathen. The works of his hands are verity and judgment. All his commandments are sure. They stand fast forever and ever and are done in truth and uprightness. He sent redemption unto his people. He hath commanded his covenant forever. Holy and reverend is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all they that do his commandments. His praise endureth forever. So verse 1 is obviously the opening hallelujah. We get that praise ye the Lord there at the start of this verse. Now, that term, for ha- that term hallelujah, um, it does not appear outside of the Psalms. And you don't encounter it in the Psalms until Psalm 104 and verse number 35. So Psalm 104, 105, and 106 all use that term. It's a little hallelujah psalm group right at the end of book 4. And then when you turn to book 5, you get that term used, Psalm 111 to Psalm 117, not except for 114. 114 does not include it. Then you have it again in Psalm 135, and then you have it at the end in Psalms 146 to 150. Now, he refers to praising the Lord with the whole heart, which is a reference to the inner being or uh, to the the whole person. Um, And this promised praise is envisioned in the congregation. He's going to praise uh, in the assembly of the upright. He's going to praise in the congregation. Verses 2 to 3 then begin to praise God's wonderful works. And God's wonderful works is going to be repeated. It's it's going to be thematic in the psalm. Um, The reference to the works of God, and as we've encountered them in the psalms, these can be creative works. So these can refer to um, his creation of the heaven and the earth, the the sun, the moon, and the stars, and things like that. It can can refer to, at times, his judgment. Um, So his bringing judgment on the nation of Egypt and uh, bringing his people out, it can refer to great acts of deliverance. And so in the context of this particular psalm and its allusions, then the works of God is particularly referring to his acts in the redemption of Israel from Egypt in the Exodus. So that is the reference for the works of God that are being contemplated, he's being praised for. Um, Righteousness... Um, that is praised is uh, refers to justice to um, right judgment. Um, typically, it is usually associated with some kind of reign or rule or governing over people. Um, and we're told here that it endures and it, and it will endure forever. So the kingdom of the Messiah um, will establish God's righteous judgment on the earth that will endure. Now, verses 4 to 6 give us the central allusions in this psalm. Um, We have these allusions to these past works 
but these past works are actually um, foreshadowing or um, promises of future works as well. So the past works of God are to be remembered or memorialized, um, as the word indicates. So that's a, a poetic expression to speak of endurance. And it's sort of like saying God's works are made to last. The things that, that God does are not going to be undone. Um, his, his works are enduring. Re- referring to God as merciful and gracious is something that often happens in reference to God's covenant faithfulness and to redemption. So uh, God merciful and gracious um, is mentioned in Exodus chapter 34 and verse number 6 when he passed before uh, Moses and declared his name. Uh, we've had references to it in places like Psalm 86, 15, and particularly in Psalm 103 and verse number 8, that great psalm. Um, of redemption and, and forgiveness of sin and all, all of those sort of things. So that, that is a, a reference that speaks of God's covenant faithfulness, particularly in redemption. Now this reference to meat being given um, in, in this context is, is alluding to that wilderness manna, um, and he will mark or remember his covenant. So in other words, he, he fed his people, and the implication is, is that he did so in faithfulness to his covenant promises. And if you remember, um, there are different times, you know, Israel would, they were brought out out of Egypt, they're brought out into the wilderness, Uh, they get to the Red Sea, you know, and they start murmuring and complaining, get through the Red Sea, and it's not long, they're murmuring and complaining, they're fed with the manna, and and they're murmuring and complaining, and all of this. Um, And even at times when God expressed anger with them, and, and, you know, told Moses, uh, I'll destroy this. I'll just make a new nation out of you. Um, and Moses prayed those great intercessory prayers where essentially Moses just says, you can't, you can't do that because you have promised by your own name to bring this people into the land. You just, you cannot do that. That essentially was Moses' prayer. So this reference to him feeding his people and, and marking or remembering his covenant, again, that's the implication. He, he fed them and sustained them because of his covenant. Then we get these past and future references um, there in verse number 6. Uh, he showed his people the power of his works that he may give them the heritage of the heathen. So there, he has showed them the power of his works, and the word for heritage that is used here is a word that means inheritance or possession. He's he's referring to Israel inheriting the land of the nations. And um, the Abrahamic covenant is in view. So there's an allusion here to the Abrahamic covenant uh, and an allusion to the conquest of Canaan that foreshadows that future conquest. Now, the word for people that is used there, you notice that he showed his people. Word for people, that's the alm that we've talked about um, it is singular, it is a um, common word for nation, and when it is used with the possessive, his people, my people, thy people, when it is used with that possessive, it refers to Israel as God's chosen nation. That's consistent throughout the Old Testament as well as through the Psalms, and we've talked about some of that before. And that's what we get here. In fact, we get it a few times in this psalm, his people being referred to. And the word for heathen, 
there at the, that you see at the end of verse number six, that's the, that's the plural. It is goyim. It is the Gentile nations that are being um, referred to. In other words, um, he's going to give them the lands of the Gentile nations is what the expression is. Verses seven and eight praise the work of God, particularly through his word. This is what I talked about where we kind of had a little minor element of a Torah psalm where it's a praise of God's word. Um, we get these related terms for his word, um, verity, which is emet, which is, uh, that's truth and judgment and all his commandments. Um, so when you get to Psalm 119, you, you'll just see a proliferation of terms that are used essentially synonymously with God's word, statutes, judgment, his command, his law, all of those sort of things. So we, we get sort of a little preview of that, you might say, here in this psalm, which is also an acrostic. So we get these related terms for his word, and essentially the expression is, is, is that his word is sure. So God's, God's word is, is not going to fail. I mean, if God has promised that he's going to gather Israel, there's going to be a new exodus of Israel out of, out of exile into that promised land, that that is to happen in the future, um, if God has promised that, and his word is sure. It's not going to fail. That's what Paul refers to in Romans uh, chapters 9 to 11. So there's an everlasting stability of God's words. They will never fall. And that, I, that, there's even the idea in the, in the imagery there of, of being stood upright, like some sort of a, maybe like a memorial stone or something that's been set upright and fixed so that it's not going to move or going to fall. Verses 9 and 10 then give us the concluding praise in this psalm. Um, we get this uh, term for redemption, which is an allusion to the Exodus. Um, and the word for command that is used, he has commanded his covenant forever. The word for command actually means to appoint or to order. So he, he has ordered his, his covenant forever. He has appointed his covenant forever. In other words, his covenant promises are everlasting. So the covenant here, that he, particularly that is being referred to, is that the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, the Abrahamic covenant, which is an everlasting covenant. Um, God has promised Abraham's seed nation will inherit the land promised for an everlasting possession. That has not yet been fulfilled, but it will be. And so that, that exodus under Moses and that conquest under Joshua was just a foreshadowing of what is ultimately going to occur, to occur. And Moses even prophesied of those things in Deuteronomy and, and Leviticus happening in the last days. The, uh, the word for holy, holy and reverend is his name, holy, uh, which, which means set apart. It's, it's generally a lot of times we associate holy with um, like moral purity, and, and, but that's not really... The idea of holiness is, is more of being separate. So separate from sin, which we could maybe interpret as a moral impurity, um, certainly, but, but separate. There's, there's a complete otherness um, to God and to his name. The word for reverend that is used here, um, it, it, it means uh, something like awe-inspiring. Um, I think maybe that even some of the newer translations have said something like holy and awesome is his name, and, and it's not um, a bad expression at all of, of what the, the word is getting at. And the reference to his name, uh, as we have seen many times, 
That his name is what his everlasting covenant rests upon. In other words, if, if you or I enter into a legal covenant, if we enter into a, a legal um, contract or something, well, there's something greater than us that stands behind that, which would be um, you know, whatever governing body that has that jurisdiction. If we fail, then that governing body can impose penalties on us and, and, and what have you. Well, there's, there's, nothing, there's no one, no thing greater than God to hold him to account for his covenant. And so just like the writer of Hebrews said, he could swear by none greater, so he swore by his own name. So God's name is what his everlasting covenant rests upon. God's name is what is at stake if Israel uh, just remains in exile, if they're never gathered and restored and planted in that promised land with David's Lord reigning over them from Jerusalem, then God's name is what is at stake. And then we get that last verse, which uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, a common wisdom saying, places like Proverbs 1, 7 and Proverbs 9, 10. Uh, wisdom... Um, uh, word for wisdom it's used here uh, the very common word for wisdom in the Old Testament that has m- more the idea of, of skill um, than, than just knowledge um, and a good understanding have all they that do his commandments so we get this wisdom concept of hearing and doing God's word we've encountered some of that in James recently uh, and here we see it in this, in this Old Testament passage in the Psalms and it's because of God's faithfulness to his promises that his praise will endure forever so if, if God's works are, are everlasting, if God's word is everlasting, if God's attributes and God himself are everlasting, then his praise will endure forever. It will be everlasting when all these things are accomplished. Psalm 111, let's go to interpretation then. This psalm obviously teaches the everlasting righteousness of God. And the everlasting righteousness of God means faithfulness to his covenant promises. So one thing that we see in this psalm is how that God's works bear his attributes. God is holy and his works are holy. God is true and his works are true. God is righteous and his works are righteous. In other words, everything that, that God does um, is, is a reflection of who God is. Uh, everything that he does is, is done according to his nature. So we see that coming out in this psalm, and therefore that means that all of these things are enduring. God is enduring. God is everlasting. God is eternal. Therefore, his works are everlasting. What he has done cannot be undone now the messianic hope of psalm 111 is seen in the fulfillment of this future vision and we we read this psalm right after psalm 110 and and psalm 110 gives it this context of praising the lord uh praising god for his lord being sent to the earth to execute god's words and so we get this word for send here in verse 9 that echoes that same word that was used in Psalm 110 in verse number 2. 
how that Yahweh will send the rod of strength out of Zion to rule over his, over his enemies. So the coming of the Messiah is the one that results in inheriting the lands of the nations. And we've seen that uh, right from the very beginning of the Psalms in Psalm 2 and verse number 8. So these Hallel Psalms were Psalms that Israel um, were to sing, uh, and they would sing in remembrance of the past exodus and in anticipation of the new future exodus where the new and better Moses would lead the 12 tribes of Israel into their everlasting inheritance promised to Abraham. So the, the psalm has sort of that effect. Again, we've got allusions in this psalm to past works, but there's, there's, as you read the psalm, there's like a blending of what God has done and what God will do. Um, it's almost hard to separate it all out um, neatly. And one of the reasons why is because what God has done is a signal. It is an, it is an indicator. It is, it's a show. It's standing for what God is going to do. So it is foreshadowing that. All right, so applications um, for this psalm. I have two of these. Number one, understanding Psalm 111 helps us understand that when we think of God's great power and when we praise God's great power, God's great power is not an attribute to, to just merely be admired. So in, in, in other words, we don't, we don't want to read this psalm and distance ourselves from him but realize that his power delivers and saves all those who trust in him. Not, not just Israel, all those who trust in him of all nations. So he is a God of great power, but that power is also for us and for our good. So ultimately, this is, this is a psalm sung by Israel in exile. And, and so it's a psalm of, of hope and, the, and praising the power of God that's going to fulfill all of his promises. Number two, understanding Psalm 111 helps us understand how to read the past works of God in anticipation of his future works. So we go to a, a book like Genesis or Exodus and uh, some of these Old Testament books and we read about these things that took place thousands of years ago. And, 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 and we can read those as um, historical events and historical facts, but, but we sh shouldn't merely leave it there. It, it shouldn't merely just be these historical facts and these historical events that, that happened that has nothing to do with us today, but rather just as um, we're told in the New Testament that, that we're, we're to look for that blessed hope. And, and we've seen how that God has already fulfilled so many promises in the sending of Christ the first time. And so now we're in a section of the Psalms that's looking forward to Christ's return, to that second coming 
um, and all that will happen in that time. So again, that very much applies to us as well, though we are not Israel and we do not inherit um, the land of Israel that was promised to Abraham, um, but still yet we do have inheritance in his kingdom through faith as we are taught. So again, the, the, this, we shouldn't read a psalm like this and, and just, again, think that it really has nothing to do with us or we're very far removed um, from these things that are being spoken about.